Very, very good. Thanks, guys. You'll be back later on, or they'll be back later on, uh, with one final song for us uh, at the end. Good. Well, who thought Taylor Swift could be used for that purpose? God did, so that's good. Um, excuse me for one moment. I'm back. It's okay. This bucket has got water in it. But we'll come back to that later on. I just want to tell you uh, that the flowers today were not put here by Ruth Weevil. God bless her. They were put here by my wife. Hooray! King's Church has a new Ruth Weevil. Hooray! <laughs> Sorry if you don't know what that means. Uh, it's an in-house joke. But uh, bless her. We love those, those weevils. Um, <laughs> we <laughs> not the ones in your flower. Anyway, my name is Quincy, um, married to Sophie, who did the flowers, and uh, we recently announced that we're going to have a baby. Hooray! Very exciting. And I'm one of the leaders here. I've got responsibility for the Rowdy Youth Group over here, and I've got responsibility for doing the Alpha course and the Just Looking course as well. And in my 30 years on earth, I have seen some unbelievable stuff. But I remember the very first time I actually experienced disbelief, and that was when I was nine years old, and Chelsea were playing Liverpool in the FA Cup on the 26th of January, 1997. And my dad, a big Chelsea fan, sat me down in the lounge. We were going to watch this game together. And obviously, we believed that Chelsea were going to win. They would be victorious because they had Viali and Zola. And uh, they were playing Collymore and McManaman. There was clearly going to be a whopping here, surely, we thought. But by half-time, things were not going Chelsea's way. They had played poorly, and they were 2-0 down at half-time, and I had had enough. I had decided that they hadn't played well enough to earn my time for the second half. So I left my house, went up the road, round the corner to Lewis Hepburn's house, and we went and had uh, some time on some computer games there instead, and his dad was downstairs watching the match, and I could hear occasionally him going, oh no, and oh, and naturally I thought he was a Chelsea fan. But then at the end of the match, when I had to go home and I'd play video games with my friend, I went downstairs and his dad said to me, you'll never believe what happened. Chelsea came back to win 4-2. And I went, no way. And I looked at his TV. I didn't believe that. I looked at him. I didn't believe him. So I went home. I asked my dad, is it true? He said, yes, we won 4-2. I didn't believe him. So where did I go next? Remember, Google didn't exist back then. So I went to the television, and I believed my TV at home. And I was delighted to realize that we had won 4-2. God bless my TV. Anyway, I imagine we've all had those times where something has happened, a remarkable event, but we refuse to believe it unless we see the evidence for ourselves. I thought up some examples for you. Parents, you might have heard of a day uh, maybe a long time ago, maybe only a short while ago, where one of your teenagers took their plate and washed it up <laughs> without any coercion whatsoever. <laughs> or children, maybe just a few months ago, someone said, there's going to be gifts under that indoor foliage in a little while. Uh, you'll see. And you went, no, surely not. And then the next day, bam, presents. Yay, they're there. And you, you saw the evidence, and you managed to receive those gifts. Or perhaps teachers in the room. Remember that student who just didn't listen in your class, who showed no interest in geography whatsoever, who then you hear on the grapevine got 95% in their exam? You would not believe it. Yeah, and you get the exam paper, and you go, ah, oh, they did it somehow. Or maybe you can relate to Katie. She probably would have refused to believe that God could give someone a prophetic picture that spoke right into her life, 
which then she could apply to her own. But then she received the evidence for it, and she had to believe it. Or perhaps even possibly a bit sadly, you've had that event in life where you've heard the news of someone passing away, and in that moment you've gone, I don't believe it, I don't want to believe it, I'm not going to believe that. But then sadly you realize the situation itself is true. But upon receiving evidence for remarkable events, we often respond in surprise or shock, like I did with Chelsea. However, there's one person who has never been shocked or surprised, and that is God. And today is Easter Day, and we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I just want to read you a short passage from John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10, and hopefully it will come up behind me. And this is John, one of the disciples of Jesus, who's made an account of what happened on the very first Easter day. So I'll read it to you. John and Mary and Peter find the tomb empty. And it starts like this. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So that's from John's Gospel. And as you may be able to tell from me reading that to you, people haven't changed much in 2,000 years. The followers of Jesus don't settle for someone else's account of the tomb being empty. No, no, they have to go and decide for themselves based on what they find when they look into the tomb. And Mary Magdalene, she's the first one to get there. She's got up so early that it's dark outside. And she sees that the tomb is open. She doesn't dare go in, but runs back to find Peter and John. And she says to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Mary thinks that someone else has taken Jesus' body away. And this is despite the fact that during his life, Jesus has communicated to his disciples that he must die, be buried, and then be resurrected from the dead. And yet, though she's seen some evidence of the resurrection, she still has not believed it at that moment. Next, there's Peter. Both he and John run to the tomb. Seems to be a lot of running in this passage for some reason. And John arrives first. He looks in. But he doesn't go in. And next, Peter, bold as brass, runs in to the tomb. And both of them had more evidence than Mary, and they saw the linen strips that Jesus' body had been wrapped in on Good Friday, but no body was actually found. Peter, I should imagine, is confused. And then John goes on, we read, to see and believe. It says, he saw and believed. And then in the next sentence, it says, They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. John saw and believed, but it didn't mean that he understood everything. Understanding, it seems, 
comes later, though he had the evidence and he'd seen it for himself. So just to put this in context, that is what happened on Easter Sunday. Jesus had been crucified on the Friday and placed in the tomb until Sunday when he rose from the dead. And that leads us to the next logical questions, which are, if that's what happened, why did it happen? Why does it even matter that the tomb was empty? And I want to answer that question for you. The short answer is this, because God loves you. But in way of a longer answer, there's this. One of the reasons that we find it hard to believe that God loves us is because we're sinful human beings and we choose not to believe what God says a lot of the time. And it all started back in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, with Adam and Eve, the first human beings disobeying God thanks to Satan's deception. And when Adam and Eve swapped truth for the lies, sin entered the hearts of the human race and has plagued us ever since. It has been passed down generation after generation. And in Romans 6.23, it says that the wages of sin is death. People die as a result of the fall, and no one is comfortable with that. Everybody grieves death in one way or another. Now, how does that apply to us? Well, we all do things that we know are wrong, whether we like it or not. Things that break the Ten Commandments, things that pollute us, hurt us, hurt other people. And deep down, no matter how good you think you are, no one is good enough to be in the presence of the holy, perfect God. And that's because nobody is perfect. Celebrities might disagree, you might disagree, but the reality is no one is perfect. And so we come to Jesus. He's part of the plan. He's part of God's plan to right this wrong, to fix the problem, to make a bridge across the chasm of us and God where sin wedged itself in the way. And God saw you separated from him by sin, and he decided to demonstrate his love for you by finding that solution and sending Jesus to earth. God's one and only son, Jesus. We read about him in the Bible. We read about him outside the Bible. Sometimes we remember to call upon his name in a crisis, and sometimes we accidentally use his name as a swear word. But we remember him. Jesus is God, and he comes to earth from heaven, through Mary, to live a life that you and I couldn't lead. He lives the perfect life. He is perfect. He gets thrown up on trial under false accusations and then chooses to die an agonizing death on the cross for you. Jesus died on the cross to pay the debt of sin, to pay for my sin, your sin, our sin, the world's sin. And as he draws his last breath on that cross, the earth shook and the temple curtain tore in two and it appeared that God had lost the battle. It appeared that God had lost the battle for his son, Jesus, and it appeared that the man who claimed to be God, who did miracles, fulfilled prophecies, taught thousands, healed lepers, wasn't who he claimed to be after all. But Sunday was coming. And on that Sunday morning, the scene we read about earlier takes place before Jesus proves to his followers that he is alive by appearing with them, by eating with them, by talking with them, in the flesh. And over 500 people, it's recorded, testified to have met the risen Jesus. We have historical evidence to back that up. And this is the evidence we have 
that God loved you so much that he was willing to make a way for you to have a relationship with him through Jesus, his only son. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's why it matters that the tomb was empty. The debt of sin that had been there was paid. It was accepted by God, and therefore Jesus was raised to glorious life before returning to heaven. The enemy had been defeated. Satan ruined. Praise God. And that's why we sang as loudly and as courageously as we could earlier on, because we knew this was the truth. Hallelujah. So, why did so many people go to that tomb? Why couldn't we just have the one person say, yep, it's true? Well, you see, our God is not silly. Our God knows you. He knows that you won't take a blind step of faith. And he knows that you need evidence in order to take the next logical step, which is putting your faith in Jesus. And it's a bit like what Katie spoke about earlier on. Her step of faith was based on evidence. She could tell you of the prayer her friend had been praying for years, the Alpha Course, where she had some questions answered and raised some more questions, the prophecy, the prophetic picture she received. She could tell you about a dream, and then she could also tell you about her experience. She could tell you about the evidence before she became a Christian that led her to take a step of faith. And then she could tell you about the experience she's had since putting her trust in Jesus. The evidence for the resurrection event is overwhelming. And people have put their faith in Jesus after studying it. Let me give you an example. Gary Streeter, conservative politician, was a lawyer in a high-flying law firm when his girlfriend took him to church. This led him to be curious. He admitted he wasn't a believer at the time, but then he studied the evidence that we have in the archives, in the museums, on the ancient manuscripts for Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And at the end of his analysis, he could not help but place his trust in Jesus based on that. Another person is from the 19th century, Lord Darling, Lord Chief Justice of England, another lawyer, someone who is used to analyzing evidence and weighing it very, very carefully. He concluded the same, and I'll read you a short quote from him after he had analyzed this evidence. He said, on that greatest point, we are not merely asked to have faith. In its favor as living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. And so, if there is sufficient evidence available for Jesus, his death and his resurrection, then now is the time to put your faith in him. Or, at the very least, commit to investigating Jesus yourself. Based on the evidence that we've got and the history, parents can believe, children can believe, teachers can believe, anyone who's ever sinned, experienced shame or guilt as a result, and anyone who's ever grieved the loss of a loved one can choose to believe and put their trust in Jesus based on this evidence. Now, I can tell you from my own personal experience and you could probably ask Katie another time, but believing in Jesus has a transformative effect on your life. Knowing that your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, gives you hope and joy and peace. No longer having to try and desperately earn approval or salvation from anyone is absolutely liberating. 
And being fulfilled by the love of God enables you to have a life that can finally be lived to the full. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a moment. Uh, you could close your eyes if you want to, but I don't want you to nod off. If, uh, if we all did this, if we all trusted the evidence and we all chose to put our faith in Jesus, what would our world look like? Well, people of Britain, I should imagine, if they all did this, would smile at each other in the street. And they might even talk on the tube or the train. It could happen. Our classrooms could be full of laughter and joy and no down-putting jokes. Our friends could build us up and no one would go unloved. Our families would be united under Jesus and your relationship with God would be living and active. You'd be free to be who you're meant to be. You'd be free to be yourself at last. You wouldn't be scared of anyone finding you out. You'd have confidence. You'd be forgiven of your sins and you'd be enabled to forgive others forever. But it all starts with responding to the evidence. So how will you respond to it? How will you respond to Jesus? I'd like to suggest to you three ways you could respond. You could reject the evidence for Jesus. And the fascinating thing about this is that God loves you enough to do that. He loves you enough to let you choose not to choose him. Although he knows that that sin separates you from him and will do forevermore if you don't choose to put your faith in him. That's one option. A second option is committing to investigate who Jesus is, looking at the evidence for yourself, joining us on Alpha or joining us on just looking to actually make a objective decision, looking at the evidence for what it is. Or the third response, believing, placing your trust in Jesus alone, no longer trying to earn your salvation by doing good deeds because that is impossible, but instead trusting that actually Jesus has done enough and that you are enough. You'd invite him into your life and receive forgiveness for your sin forevermore, removing that barrier. I'm really tempted to do the Nicky Gumbel illustration, but we, we don't have time. You'll have to come and join me on Just Looking or Alpha for that. But God would remove that separation, that block of sin that comes in between you and him if you believe and invite him in. Now, back to my bucket. Sorry, flowers. Sorry, love. I told you that there's water in the bucket. But how can you be sure? I could tell you about it. I could describe it to you. I could have a wash in it. But the only way you'd know the truth is if you came and saw for yourself. And the same is Jesus. It's true with Jesus. My point is this. The resurrection happened so that everyone could believe in Jesus and have the life they never expected the evidence is available so you could go and see for yourself. And Jesus had a great moment with one of his disciples who wasn't with all the others when he appeared in the flesh the first time. Thomas said to the other disciples, I'm not going to believe it unless I see Jesus for myself, unless I see the scars in his hands and in his side. And then Jesus, lo and behold, appears to him in the flesh. And at the end of their conversation, Thomas goes, my Lord and my God, he finally believes. And Jesus says in John 20, verse 29, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Once again, God knew this 
And at the end of the Gospel of John, there are two wonderful verses that are there for us, plain to see, and they go like this. 30, 30 and 31 read, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I'm going to ask our band to come back up because in a couple of minutes, we're going to sing one last worship song together. Referring back to the football match I mentioned at the start, you may feel a bit like I did after 45 minutes of Chelsea-Liverpool. You may feel like God let you down in the first half of your life. You may feel like God wasn't there for you. You may feel like God wasn't there to support you during hard times that you've been through. But today I wanted to make space at the end of this message to invite anyone who might want to invite Jesus into their life for the very first time or recommit to following to do so. And uh, this is just a helpful way of doing this. Um, but would you mind where you're sat, just closing your eyes for a moment? Because if you wish to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, it's personal. It's between you and him, and you can receive forgiveness for your sins. And all you need to do is pray to him, not to me, but to him. And I'm going to pray a prayer which uh, I'd ask you to repeat if you're serious about this. If you've counted the cost of following Jesus and you want to receive forgiveness, then pray these words in your heart or out loud, and he will hear you. Pray like this. Jesus, I am sorry for all the things I've done wrong in my life. I repent of my sin and turn away from all I know to be wrong right now. Thank you for living the life I couldn't live. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Please baptize me with your Holy Spirit and empower me to live a life pleasing to you. Amen. And just while your eyes are still closed, if you want to recommit, if you know you've walked away from God, if you know that during your life you've spent time apart from him, you've allowed sin or behavior or something or someone to come in between you and God, then actually now's the time to put him back as first in your heart. And this is a very short prayer. You can just pray after me as well, praying to Jesus. It says, Jesus, I confess I have walked away from you during my life. I wish to recommit to following you day by day. I repent of my sinful attitude and invite you to fill me, heal me, and protect me with your Holy Spirit. Amen. And still while your eyes are closed and you haven't fallen asleep, I trust. If you prayed that first prayer for the first time, would you mind raising your hand just so I can see? It's only my eyes that are open. Thank you. You can put your hands down. And if you prayed that second prayer, would you mind raising your hand? Thank you, you can put your hands down. You may open your eyes. For anyone who raised their hand there, we're here for you. We want to speak to you. We want to spend time with you. We want to pray with you. Um, so do come and find me at the end. I did see some hands, so I'll go and speak to you guys and get to you if I can, if you haven't got to rush off. We're
we're going to praise God for this wonderful evidence, this wonderful news that we are able to come and see for ourselves. So why don't you stand? And we'll sing, I praise the name together. Thank you. 